You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Rethinking Economics, Lectures and Seminars on World Economics. This is Lecture 7, entitled Price Formation, given in Dornach on July 30, 1922. We have now seen how the economic system as a whole takes its course. We have seen how purchase or sale, loan and gift act as impelling factors, motivating factors, within this system. Let us realize at once that there can be no economic system without this interplay of purchase, loan, and gift. The influences that create the economic values, of which we have already spoken from one aspect, and which lead to the forming of price, will therefore proceed from these three factors, purchase, loan, and gift. The important thing is to understand how the three factors work in the forming of price. Only by perceiving this shall we succeed to any degree in formulating the price problem. It is quite necessary that we should have a distinct view of the real nature of separate economic problems. In this respect our present economic science is full of unclear ideas. Ideas that, as I have often explained, become confused mainly because they try to grasp what is in constant movement as if it were at rest. Granting, then, that purchase, loan, and gift are inherent in economic movement, let us consider what in our present-day economy are, if I may so call them, the principal factors of rest. Let us turn for a moment to what is perhaps one of the most discussed topics nowadays, and a principal source of the errors that find their way into economic science. People talk of wages, and they talk of them in such a way as to make them look like the price of labor. If the so-called wage earners have to be paid more, they say that the price of labor has gone up. If they have to be paid less, they say that labor is cheaper. They actually speak as though a kind of sale and purchase took place between the wage earners who sells their labor and those who buy it from them. But this sale and purchase is fictitious. It does not in reality take place. That is the trouble in our present economic conditions. We have everywhere hidden or masked relationships, relationships that develop in a way not in accordance with what in a deeper sense they really are. I have spoken of this before. Value in the economic system, as we have already seen, can arise only in the exchange of products, in the exchange of commodities or more generally of economic products. It cannot arise in any other way. But what follows? If value can arise only in this way, and if, moreover, the price of the value is to be arrived at along the lines laid down yesterday, parenthesis, that is, by seeing that the producers of a given product receive as its counter-value 
what they will require to satisfy their needs during the production of another like product. Close parenthesis. If this is to be possible, the various products must, as it were, reciprocally determine one another's value. After all, it is not difficult to see that this is what actually happens in the economic process, only it is masked by the fact that money steps in between the objects exchanged. But the money is not the important thing. We would not take the slightest interest in money if it did not foster the exchange of products, making the process not only more convenient but less expensive. We would have no need of money if it were not for the fact that when people bring a product to the market under the influence of the division of labor, they cannot be bothered to get what they need from wherever it is. They take money for it instead, so that they may supply their needs later on at their own convenience. Therefore we may say that it is the mutual tension arising between the various products in the economic process that must be concerned in the forming of prices. Let us consider, from this point of view, the so-called wage nexus, that is, the labor nexus. We cannot really exchange labor for anything, because between labor and anything else, there is no possibility of reciprocal determination of value. We may fancy that we are paying for labor. We may even actualize this fancy by letting in the wage nexus. But we do not really do anything of the sort. In reality, even in the labor or wage nexus, it is values that are exchanged. Workers produce something directly and deliver a product. And it is this product that the entrepreneur, Unternehmer, really buys from them. In actual fact, down to the last penny, the entrepreneur pays for the products that the workers deliver. It is time to begin to see these things in their right light. Entrepreneurs buy products from workers, and after they have bought the products, it is their business to impart to them a higher value by making use of the conditions present in the social organism and by their own enterprising or undertaking spirit. It is really this that gives them their profit. They gain on the transaction because having bought the commodities from the workers, they are able by their knowledge of the market, we must not shirk unpleasant expressions, to enhance the value of the commodities. In the labor nexus, therefore, we are dealing with a true purchase. We cannot speak of a surplus value arising through the labor nexus as such. All we can say is that in certain circumstances the price that the enterpriser pays is not according to the true price of which we spoke yesterday. This is a situation we shall often find in the economic process, that although the products reciprocally determine one another's values, although they have their real values, these values are not actually paid for in the course of commercial dealing. It is necessary enough to see that all values are not really paid for. Take the case of a man who is a manufacturer on a small scale who suddenly inherits a large legacy. Tired of the whole factory business, he decides to sell his stock in trade and does so at an absurdly low price. That does not mean that the commodities decrease in value. 
it only means that the true price is not paid. In ways like this, prices are constantly being falsified in the actual economic process. We must not forget this. In the course of commercial dealing, prices may often be falsified. There is nevertheless a true price. The commodities sold by the man in the above example are worth just as much as the same commodities produced by someone else. Now that we have tried to make it clear that the wage nexus does really involve a purchase, let us consider what is involved by rent, by the price of land. You see, the conditions under which the price of land originates are not those of a mature economy. To take an extreme instance, we may consider how a piece of land may have come under the control of particular people by conquest, that is, by the exercise of force. Even here, no doubt, the element of exchange will enter in to some extent. The invader will have granted certain portions of the conquered territory to those who helped him to victory. Here, then, at the starting point of an economic process, we have something that is not properly economics. The process is not really economics. It is a process to which we can only apply the word power, or right. By means of power, rights are gained. Rights, in this case, over land. We have the economic domain bordering on the one hand on these relationships of rights and power. What is it that takes place under the influence of such relationships of rights and power? This is what happens continually. Those who have the free right of disposal over land look after themselves better than those others who are attached to them as laborers who deliver the products by their labor. I am speaking now not of the labor but of the products of the labor. It is the products of labor with which we are concerned. The laborers have to deliver more to the landowners than they deliver to other laborers. This indeed is only the prolongation of the conquest or rights relationship. What is this excess that is given to them over what they give? What is it, in other words, that falsifies the price relationship in this case? It is none other than a compulsory gift. Here, then, the relation of giving comes in, with the sole difference that those who are to make the gift do so not of their own free will, but by compulsion. It is, a fact of, it is in fact, a compulsory gift. That is what happens in relation to land, to the land. Through the compulsory gift, the price that farm products really ought to have in terms of other products is actually raised. Thus the price of all things capable of subjection to such relationships of rights has an inherent tendency to rise above its true level. So, for instance, if foresters or hunters are living with farmers, the foresters and hunters will come off better than the farmers. Farmers among forest people have to pay higher prices to the foresters for what they give the farmers. Higher prices, that is to say, than the true exchange prices as between their respective products. In forestry, more than anywhere else, it is as a pure matter of rights that the owners have the products of nature at their disposal and determine prices. Farming requires some real labor, 
but in forestry, hunting and the like, we come very near to the pure laborless valuation, a valuation proceeding solely from relationships of rights and power. Again, if skilled workers are living among farmers, the prices once again will tend to rise above their true level on the farmer's side, while on the other hand they will sink beneath the true level against the skilled worker. Life is more expensive for skilled workers among farmers. Life is comparatively less expensive for farmers among the skilled workers, assuming there are enough of them to make any appreciable difference. Skilled workers among farmers will find life comparatively more expensive. Thus the sequence governing this tendency for prices to rise above or to sink below their true level is as follows. First forestry, then farming, then the skilled trades, and last the completely free spiritual cultural work. These are the lines along which we should approach the problem of price formation in the economic process. There is a tendency, an inherent tendency, in the economic process to create rent. The economic process tends, as it were, of its own accord to submit itself to this necessity of paying more for farm products than for other things. This tendency exists where there is division of labor. And all of our discussions refer to a social organism in which there is division of labor. This tendency is called forth through the fact, which I had to repeat twice a few days ago to the bewilderment of a large part of the audience, that those who provide for themselves live more expensively, and for that reason they must take more for their products, must estimate them at a higher value than those who get their products in independent commercial dealing from others. This circumstance simply does not enter into the process in the case of farming. In relation to the various branches of industry, this principle of expense in providing for oneself has a very real meaning, though you may have to think, to think a very long time to find your way to that meaning. With respect to agriculture and forestry, however, this principle has no meaning. We must never forget that when we are dealing with realities, the various concepts hold good only for certain areas. They change for other areas. This is equally true in other walks of life. What is a means of healing for the head is pernicious, is a means to disease for the stomach, and, and vice versa. So it is in the economic organism. For example, if it were at all possible for farmers to not provide for themselves, the rules we apply for the general circulation of commodities would be right in their case too. <laughs> the fact is, however, that they cannot help but provide for themselves. Within the economic process, the entire agriculture of a social organism forms of its own nature an entity, a whole, however many individual landowners there may be. Accordingly, farmers must in every case keep back from the totality of their products what they need to provide for themselves. Even if they get it from another farmer, in reality they are still keeping it back. In reality, the farmers provide for themselves. Hence, they are obliged to value their goods more expensively. The consequence is that prices must rise on their side.
It follows that there is an inherent tendency to create rents in the economic process. The only question will now be how these rents can be made harmless in the economic life. In the first place, we must know that this tendency to create rent exists. If you abolish rents in one form or another, they will be created again, for the simple reason that I have just explained. You see, for the same reason that underlies the tendency in the economic process to create rent, there arises, on the other hand, the tendency of manufacturers to devalue capital, to make capital cheaper and cheaper. We shall best understand this tendency if we are clear, to begin with, that capital cannot really be bought. True, there are dealings in capital, people, in quotes, buy capital. Every such purchase of capital is, once again, merely a masked relationship. In reality, we do not buy capital, we only borrow it. In the end, even if the relationship is apparently other, you will always be able to unmask it and expose the loan character of business capital. I say expressly of business capital, for if you extend the principle to rents, it is no longer the case. It is certainly the case with business capital, for the simple reason that there is a constant tendency to undervalue, as compared with other things, what depends on human will, that is to say craftsmanship or manufacture and entirely free spiritual cultural work, at this point in the diagram, page 72. Business capital is altogether implicated in the independent spiritual cultural work. Hence it is constantly being devalued. And we may say on this side, diagram page 72, there is inherent in the economic process a tendency, while we create rents, to lower business capital, to make it lower and lower in value. Just as things become more and more expensive on the one side, on the side of ground rent, so do they become cheaper and cheaper on the other side, on the side of capital. Capital has a permanent tendency to go down in its economic value, or rather in its economic price. Rents have a permanent tendency to rise in price. There is also another reason from which you will see that business capital must inevitably go down. We said just now that in farming, one cannot help providing for oneself. It is just by this self-provision that the rise in the value of farm products is brought about. At the same time you will see that in the case of business capital, where the loan principle predominates, one cannot provide for oneself, one cannot provide for oneself with capital. What one does provide for oneself must be included in the balance sheet nowadays in precisely the same way as what one borrows, if the balance sheet is to be correct. Since, therefore, at this point, diagram page 72, one cannot provide for oneself, it follows that the opposite tendency obtains, the tendency toward lower prices. Everything depends on our seeing clearly through these relationships in the economic process. Then we shall see that it is by no means easy to establish true prices. 
the true price is constantly being upset by the fact that on the one hand there are things appearing on the market that tend to be too high in price, while on the other hand there are things appearing that tend to be too low in price. Since the price is settled by exchange, being in the middle between the two, it is continually exposed to these disturbing influences. You can observe this very clearly in the economic process. In the same measure in which the products of forestry and agriculture grow more expensive, those produced by free cultural activity grow cheaper. In this way there arise those relationships of tension that give rise to social unrest and discontent. This, therefore, is the most important question in relation to the formation of price. How can we deal with the natural tension that exists in the creation of prices between the values accruing to goods arising out of our free will and the values accruing to those goods in the production of which nature participates? How can we get at this tension? How can we balance the one, the downward tendency, with the other, upward tendency? Through division of labor, more and more highly differentiated products arise. You need only remember how simple the products are that arise, let us say, among a hunting or forest community. Here the price difficulty scarcely comes into question. But as soon as agriculture is added to forestry, the difficulty begins. In effect, the difficulty lies in the differentiation. The further the division of labor extends, and new needs arise in the process, the more does the differentiation of products increase, and the more do difficulties connected with price formation accumulate. The more varied the products are, the more difficult it becomes to bring about this reciprocal valuation, and the valuation can only be reciprocal. This may be seen from the following comparison. There is a reciprocal valuation even in the case of products only slightly differentiated from one another, say, for instance, wheat, rye, and other agricultural products. Follow this process over a long period of time, and you will find that the relationship of reciprocal valuation between wheat, rye, and other cereals remains fairly stable. If wheat goes up, the other grains go up. If wheat goes down, the other grains go down with it. This is because there is comparatively little differentiation between these products. As soon as the differentiation becomes greater, this constancy no longer exists. It may well happen, through various events in the social organism, that some product that someone has been accustomed to exchange for another suddenly shoots up in price, while the other may go down at the same time. Think what shifts are thus brought about in economic relationships. Altogether, the things that happen in the economic sphere depend far more on mutual rising and failing prices than on any other circumstance. It is by the mutual rise and fall in prices that the difficulties of life itself are introduced into the economic sphere. <laughs> as to whether the products as a whole rise or fall, if they all would rise or fall uniformly, this would concern us very little. What interests people is that the different products rise or fall to a different extent. This fact is emerging in a very tragic way just now under the present economic conditions. 
Products rise and fall in varying measure. Money values especially are rising and falling. But in the money values we simply have stored what were once real values. By this rising and falling, an entire mingling and confusion is now being brought about in society. From this we can see that there is another way too, in which we must look at the factors operative in the economic organism. We look our we, we took our start from the several factors that are enumerated by orthodox e- economics. But we saw that the mere enumeration of nature, capital, and labor leads us no farther. Precisely when you add what we have said today to what has been said before, you will see that the pricing or valuing of the products of nature comes about not only through purely economic relationships, but also through relationships of rights or title. On the other hand, the valuing of business capital is influenced by the free human will with all that it unfolds when it is active in public life. Consider all that is necessary in order to collect a sum of capital for a given purpose. Here the free human will comes in. Where lending is concerned, free human will has a very great part to play, indirectly perhaps, because those who want to have savings are naturally going to invest those savings. Whether they ever save at all or not is an expression of their will. Here then the free human will plays a great part, or excuse me, plays a real part. If we take this into account, we shall find yet another classification of the economic factors in addition to the one that we have been considering thus far. Up until now I have given you a diagrammatic classification in which I showed the following. There is nature. But value arises only through nature elaborated. It arises only when nature moves in the direction of human labor. And again, value will arise through human labor only when it moves on toward capital, that is, toward spirit. In this way the tendency arises to return to nature. This, as we saw, can be prevented by leading the excess capital not into nature where it would become fixed, but into independent spiritual-cultural undertakings, where it vanishes, except for the remnant, which must continue as a kind of seed by which the economic process can be maintained. In addition to this movement, which begins on the left and moves anti-clockwise, diagram page 72, there is another movement. The former movement, as we have seen, gives rise to elaborated nature, organized or articulated labor, and emancipated capital. Capital, that is to say, that figures only within undertakings dependent on mind or spirit. Active capital. The second movement does not lead to the creation of values in this way, the preceding element always being taken on by the next element, but goes in the opposite direction. The first movement runs counterclockwise, the second clockwise. Here, in the first movement, something arises through the former member that is always working on into the next. In the second movement, something arises through the fact that what flows in one direction receives, as it were, what is flowing in the other direction and embraces it. You will soon see what I mean. 
Remember that capital is, properly speaking, spirit realized in the economic process. So I can write at this point, quote, spirit, unquote. We now have nature, labor, and spirit. When the spirit absorbs and receives the elaborated nature, nature transformed by labor, when it does not merely lead elaborated nature on into the economic process in the continued counterclockwise movement, but absorbs it, means of production arise. What we call means of production is something different from a product of nature that has been elaborated for consumption. It is in quite an opposite process of movement. Means of production is a product of nature taken charge of by spirit, a nature product that spirit needs. From the pen that I possess as my means of production to the most complicated machinery in a factory, means of production are nature grasped by spirit. Nature can be elaborated and sent on in this direction, in which case it becomes capital, or it can be sent in the other direction, in which case it becomes means of production. What arises at this point with the help of means of production can move on, and human labor can take charge of it. Just as nature is here received by the spirit, so can the means of production, in the widest sense of the term, be received in turn by labor. What have we then when labor receives the means of production, when means of production and labor are united? It is business capital, for in effect business capital consists in this very union. If you follow the process farther, you get a movement whereby means of production and business capital coalesce. If this movement is now continued so that nature, albeit a different portion of nature from what is the consumption process, continuously receives what has been produced with the help of means of production and business capital, then and only then does there arise in the economic process what we may call commodity in the proper sense. The commodity is at once taken over by the process of nature. Either it is eaten, in which case it is taken up very strongly by nature, or it is used or otherwise worn out. In short, a product becomes a commodity by the very fact that it returns to nature. We may say, therefore, that we have now traced out the movement that is inherent in the whole economic process, and that contains the three factors, means of production, business capital, and commodities. Here, at this third point in the diagram, the distinction becomes unusually difficult. When the thing we are seeking is shifting back and forth in the process of exchange proper, Parenthesis, that is, in purchase and sale, close parenthesis, it is extraordinarily difficult to distinguish whether it is moving in this direction or in that, whether it is a commodity or something that cannot be called a commodity in the true sense of the word. How does a piece of goods become a commodity? In describing this counterclockwise movement, to make the nomenclature quite exact, I ought really to say in quotes, goods instead of, in quotes, commodities. And in the opposite movement, I ought to write commodity, for a commodity may be defined as a piece of goods in the hands of the merchant, 
the tradesperson who offers it for sale and does not use it personally. Today my main purpose was that we should acquire concepts that point to the true relationships in the economic process. These true relationships are again and again being diverted by falsified processes into a mode of operation that introduces constant disturbances into the economic process. Continually to smooth out and compensate for the disturbances is one of the essential tasks of economics. People keep on saying that we ought to get rid of the damages in economic life. They are inclined to have at the back of their minds the notion that then everything would be all right and earthly paradise would begin. That is no different than saying, quote, I should like once and for all to eat so much that I need never eat any more. I cannot do that. I am a living organism, wherein ascending and descending processes must constantly be taking place. Such ascending and descending processes must likewise be present in the economic life. There must be the tendency, on the one hand, to falsify prices by the formation of rent, and on the other hand the tendency to lower prices on the side of business capital. These tendencies are present at all times, and we must understand them in order to obtain, as far as possible, those prices that represent a minimum of falsification. To this end it is necessary, by direct human experience, to take hold of the economic process, as it were, in the nascent state, to be within it at all times. The individual can never do this, nor can a society above a certain size, such as the state, for example. It can be done only by associations, which grow out of the economic life itself and which are therefore able to work out of the immediate reality of the economic life. The greater the technical accuracy with which we study the economic process, the more are we led to acknowledge that the required institutions must grow out of the economic life itself. They will then be able to observe the kind of tendencies that are at work and to understand how these tendencies can be counteracted. The end of Lecture 7